The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. It's good to be here. I am a grandma. <laughs> Spent the day with my grandson. Feels great. I'm exhausted. <laughs> um, so tonight, what I'd like to talk about is the texture of practice. The texture of practice. So uh, before I start, I want to ask a question. How many people in here have been practicing meditation for less than a year? Okay. I just want to be sure that I am um, speaking with examples that make sense to everyone (laughs) and talk about a topic in a way that everybody can kind of relate to it. So that was the reason for the question. So um, when you think about texture... Usually you don't think about good and bad. You think about irregularities in a surface. You think about smoothness or roughness. But not necessarily... And and you may prefer smoothness or roughness. But texture all by itself is just a quality. It's just something that gives you an idea, an objective idea about something. So texture has shape to it, and it has a a touch, touchy kind of feeling to it. Our practice generally takes different forms. So one way that we practice is by meditation, and we have a couple of different ways that we can meditate. We meditate by emphasizing concentration, or we might meditate by uh, emphasizing mindfulness. Both things kind of go together, but basically there are different ways that we meditate. Or our practice might be more of a life practice, where we pay a lot of attention, we're mindful of the way we live our lives, We're mindful of the way we walk, or we're mindful of our breathing sometime during the day. Or maybe our practice has more elements of working with things like greed, hatred, and delusion, or working on ethics, trying to live an ethical life. Maybe our practice is meta-practice, loving-kindness meditation, where we wish well for ourselves or other people. All of these are different ways of practice, and they're part of the texture of practice. Some of them are very soft. Some of them seem more edgy. Some of them seem like something that requires a lot of attention. Some things lead more to calmness. So these are are aspects of texture. But in addition to that, we have kind of the way we think about the practice. So there are the, just the specific ways of practice. And then there is whether we're calm in meditation or we're restless or we're agitated as we go through our lives or we're more or less mindful in our lives. We find ourselves at the end of the day and you say, what has happened today? I can't, I can't even tell you anything I did. You know, we're, sometimes we're more mindful than at other times. 
or we're aware of all the hindrances and we're aware of restlessness or, or wanting or not wanting. So the ways that we think about our practice involve all of these different ways of thinking about practice. Sometimes we think about practice as easy. Sometimes it's difficult. And yet, most people come to this practice thinking, oh, I'm going to be peaceful and restful. I'm going to meditate, and my life is going to be easy, and I'm going to be a better person. And then we start practicing. We meditate. We bring up mindfulness in our lives, and we discover that it really isn't about just being peaceful. It really isn't about how easy and calm everything is. We discover ourselves. We discover our minds. We discover how they work. Sometimes we like what we find, and sometimes we don't like what we find. Practice actually is very simple. Practice is about seeing things as they are. Seeing things as they are. It's not about changing how things are. It's seeing things as they are. Whether sitting on the cushion or following some aspect of our lives, that's basically what it is. We're we're trying to see things as they are. The details of that practice create what I refer to as the texture of practice. All the ways in which it is individual, either to the moment or to ourselves, to each of us, our practice is a little different. Everything about it is a little different. Sometimes it's fast, deep, smooth, easy. Sometimes it's ragged. Have you ever had a really ragged meditation? You sit down and you just say, ah! What's going on here? This isn't what I signed up for. (laughs) Does it have meaning, this texture? Does it have meaning? You know, we, we like something, we don't like something. That's part of what is the texture of the practice. But does it have meaning? Does it have to have meaning? Or is it simply the quality of the moment, whatever that quality is? Are we wed to progress? Okay, I've been sitting for five years. By now, I should be. Name your poison. We have expectations around our practice. This is what, this is what it should be like. This is what it should be like. But this is actually not a story about the ups and downs of practice, but rather how to go about practice. How can we use this quality, this texture of quality in our practice without judging it, without making it into something, without ascribing meaning to it? How can we use texture to discover more about how to be free? How can we use texture to know 
how to end suffering in our lives. What does that mean? How does the shape, irregularity, smoothness of our practice play out over, uh, play out over time? And what is our relationship to it? What is our relationship to the practice? So I'm going to start with a story. Many of you may have heard this. It's called an autobiography in five chapters. So here's how it goes. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a big hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. And it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see that it's there. I fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. Can you believe there's still four chapters, two chapters? Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Yay. Chapter five. I walk down a different street. Okay, now this can be viewed as a lesson in how to profit by our errors, how to improve ourselves. But it can also be taken as a story about our practice. Because the truth is, what we uncover, we keep uncovering. It's not like we discover something and it goes away. We've only discovered it. Hello? <laughs> I see you, and then we fall in the hole again. And this is not unusual. This isn't because we're bad. This is because this is what our mind has been trained to do. This is how we do. It shows up in subtle ways. It shows up in very gross ways. It has a lot to do with the conditions we set up in our lives and the environment that we live in. If we live in a, in a, a family, we have to deal with the family. That's just it. We have to. And we have, we have ways that we, we're used to dealing with them. So are we surprised when what comes up is, uh-oh, same old pattern. Okay? So we may, we may actually recognize a pattern, but not recognize what's causing us suffering. That's finding, seeing the whole and falling in it again. We've fallen it again because we haven't figured out what it is that's actually happening. We recognize the pattern. I'm sitting here. I'm following my breath. My breath is coming easily. I'm following it, following it. A thought arises. It's about that. You know, I'm so sick of that guy standing at that place in the, right outside my cubicle, and he's always talking on the telephone, right outside my cubicle, and why is he, oh, no, no, back to my breath, back to my breath. You know, if he does that again tomorrow, I'm going to talk to the manager about him. This has got back to the breath, back to the breath. 
Now, we notice the habit of thinking about this. We know to come back to the breath. But there's something underlying the irritation about this guy and his cell phone outside your cubicle. There's something underlying that that is still there. So it keeps irritating. It keeps irritating. But following the texture of your practice is seeing what else is there that's responsible for that. Now, so far, all we've done with coming back to the breath is it's his fault. He's ruining my, rep- my meditation with his cell phone outside my cubicle every afternoon. Of course, it's not every afternoon. I'm sitting on my cushion. It's evening. He's not spoiling my meditation. Something else is spoiling my meditation. And by the way, who said it was being spoiled? Huh? Now we're making a judgment about our meditation because it isn't what we wanted. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, so there's a big hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. Most of us came to meditation because there was something in our lives that was unsatisfactory. Most of us came to meditation because we were really unhappy. We wanted more. We wanted to see what was true. So why are we surprised when we keep bumping into those things? Of course they're there. Of course they're there. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. Okay. We're going along in our lives. We have amazing insights. We see, oh, if I just let go of my irritation at this guy with his cell phone, I'm going to be fine. And then it happens again and again and again because nothing about the conditions have changed. So we're trying to tell ourselves that we need to change and let go of this situation when we haven't figured out what it is that's bothering us really. What is it that's bothering us really? Our desires and our aversions don't go away just because we see them. It helps to see them. It helps to see them. But they don't go away. Something else has to change for that to go away. Something has, the thing that has to change is the way we look at it, the way our minds grab onto it. We don't su- be, suddenly become experts at concentration because we'd like to. Be nice. That's just not the way it works. We have to keep practicing until we see what else is true. Something else is true. We're still anxious. We're still agitated. We're still prone to anger. Why is that? We have two possible outcomes here. One is we become discouraged. (laughs) And we say, this isn't working. I'm still irritated about the guy with the cell phone. Another is that we become inspired. And we say, oh, 
you know, I'm beginning to get it. I'm beginning to get that it's just my desire that he goes away, that I'm making into a really big deal that's making me unhappy. And maybe there's some choices that arise out of that. It's too easy to just notice the top thing, the top thing on the list that we find irritating. I want this to be different. And we don't notice the 50 things underneath it that are supporting it. That's, that's where the real trick lives. So then we say, oh, the practice is no good. This isn't going to do it for me. Or we say, I'm no good. I can't do this. I can't figure it out. I'm a failure. The next day, we realize that what irritates us about this guy is not the cell phone, actually. People are using cell phones all around. It's the fact that he's leaning on my cubicle and I'm feeling crowded. (laughs) Oh, I didn't realize I was feeling crowded. That's really interesting. I am such a good meditator, I figured that out. And now we're patting ourselves on the back because we figured it out, you know? Everything's solved. It's all going to be better now. And the next day he comes and he leans on the cubicle and we're still pissed. <laughs> you know? We, t- we, sing, we, we tend to take blame for when things aren't going right and we pat ourselves on the back when things are going well. But really, what's changed? And why do we think we control it? Now that's interesting. Why do I think I control my life? Huh. Okay. Chapter 3. I see the hole is there. I fall in. It's a habit. Okay, it's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get it. I get it. It's a habit. So how do I change my mind habit? How do I change my desire to be perfect? I want to be perfect. How do I change that? Maybe I have to say, why do I think I could be perfect? Why do I think perfect is a good thing? Where did that come from? These are all movements of the mind. These are all creations of the mind. And here we are trying to live our lives based on thoughts, just stuff we thought up. We're not talking about ethical behavior here. We're just talking about ordinary expectations. I should be better. Who says I'm bad? (laughs) What is this? What is this that's driving us? We recognize a habit, a way of being caught. We can choose how to respond. So one of the things that happened today, my my grandson has this little truck. It's a a dump truck. And it has this little uh, back. It's a, a recycling truck. It's not exactly a dump truck. So it's not one of these open dump trucks. So it has a little lip that, uh, a little door that you can hold up and you can stuff things inside and then the door falls down and then 
when you lift it up to dump it, everything can fall out. So he figured out he could stick things in that door, and he was very excited about it. The only problem was you had to hold the door open because it automatically fell shut. And he didn't get that. He knew that you could put things in that door, and he knew that the door would hold it in, but he, he'd forget how to open the door, and then he'd open it, and then he'd reach for something, and by then the door had closed. He didn't understand that he had to hold the door open and then stuff the thing in at the same time. And he really got frustrated. And I thought, that's how we are. We recognize something. We know that it's going to work. We know how to do it. But there's something we don't know. There's something that we don't know. And we just get frustrated. And we want to pound the floor. Why isn't this habit gone? And it's not gone because we haven't seen something else about it. We haven't seen something else. We don't know how it arises. We don't know what leads up to that, what conditions we're setting up that allow that to arise. That's what we have to look at. That's where the texture is. The first thing you notice is, I'm irritated. The guy is causing my irritation. Then I notice, oh, I'm feeling crowded. What's that about? How come I'm feeling crowded? What is it about this that makes me feel crowded? You know what? I don't like loud noises. Oh, I didn't know that about myself. Okay. So if we get down to the point where we figure out it's about loud noises, it's not this guy at all. We don't have to let go of our irritation at that guy because he's not the problem. It's loud noises that are the problem. There's something about loud noises that are the problem. What is that? So it isn't so much about changing what's out there. It's about really seeing it. What else is here? What's causing this? What's setting it up for me? So if we're constantly having to struggle against the irritation, we're putting a lot of energy into that struggle. And you know what? We can get pretty attached to that struggle. We're pretty used to that struggle. Yeah, I'm getting ready for the struggle, you know, and you're, you're ready for it, and it happens, and you're, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this. And then it becomes everything. It becomes bigger than the original issue. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of get used to that struggle and overcoming that st- the, the barriers. And, and you, you get tight, tied into this new pattern, this new pattern instead of what was originally happened. This is what the mind does. It gets kind of, kind of gets juice out of this. In the same way, we get addicted to our insights. You know, so uh, we had a, uh, an online course recently on introduction to meditation. And uh, one of the things we do on the online course is we give people a half an hour of mentoring once a week for the six weeks of the course. So I had a number of students that I was mentoring. And one of them came up to me in, a, in about week four. We were talking on the phone, and she said, 
you know, it was so exciting the first three weeks. I was discovering all these great new things, and now nothing happened this week. And it's like, I don't want to meditate anymore. I said, whoa, maybe there's something we can do here. (laughs) So I gave her something to work on, because the way her mind was working, she needed something to work on. That's where she was. That's where she was. She needed something to work on. But it wouldn't have done any good for me to tell her that. That would have been a waste of my time. She needed to be able to see what her mind was doing. And then she gets to the end of the course and she says, Wow, this is so great. (laughs) Because she was able to see that she had become addicted to the insights, that she was getting really excited about how exciting it all was. And practice isn't about excitement, actually. Excitement is about, practice is about seeing things as they are. And sometimes they're flat. What can we learn when they're flat? We can learn a lot when things are flat. We learned how our mind feels about flat. Do you know how your mind feels about flat? Do you know how your mind feels about boredom? It's doing a lot of things when you're bored. It's, there's a lot of movement. And you learn a lot about yourself if you can study what's happening when you're bored. So, sometimes we have a period of great growth and we mistake this for the path. We think the path is about growing. Once again, not really true. The path is about seeing things as they are. Sometimes we're growing. Sometimes we're in a place where we are integrating what we know. Sometimes we're in a place where we're resting. God forbid we should rest. Doesn't have to be the same. The relationship to our practice is what we expect from our practice. And we have all these ideas about what's going to happen as we continue practicing. Here's what I want to happen. And when it happens, we feel great. And when it doesn't happen we think we're doing something wrong. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Okay, so now I've discovered these things about myself. I'm going to ignore my irritation. No. (laughs) When we're ignoring it, We're just pretending it's not there. We're just saying, I'm not going to pay attention to this thing that's true. We're saying, I don't want this to be true. I'm going to push this away. No, that's not going to work either. Because every time we're pushing something away, we're putting energy into it. There's the struggle that we're engaged in. I'm struggling against this. I'm going to make this go away. Chapter 5, 
I walk down a different street. The thing that's important about chapter 5 is I no longer need that hole in the sidewalk. I don't even have to think about it. I don't fight against it. I don't have to overcome it. I really don't care about it. It's not here anymore. This actually does happen. Something is very irritating in your life, something that you really want to be different than it is. When you figure out why it's irritating you and you work on that, whatever that irritation isn't even important anymore. It's very often not about that. Not about that. Very often, there is energy in the struggle. One of the things I discovered about myself is that I get very attracted to energy. I remember somebody once asked me what I wanted in a man, and I said, he's got to have energy. And she said to me, what kind of energy? I said, what do you mean, what kind of energy? I was so irritated with her. What do you mean, what kind of energy? And the reason I was irritated is I didn't want to look at the fact that there are lots of kinds of energy. I didn't want to look at the fact that I was really interested in that stimulus and that that was really a pretty poor way to think about what I wanted in a partner. Important, but not the only thing. (laughs) Not. Turned out it wasn't nearly as important as I thought it was. Once I decided that it had to do with more about myself than about the relationship. It's very easy to look at energy and not see it. Sometimes we get angry because it makes us feel alive. Because we feel that surge of energy And that feels lively. And we forget that that energy can be very negative and that the effects of it can be very negative. So every time I find myself reacting to energy, I I say to myself, what else is here? What, What am I seeing? What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? It's that underlying texture about the practice that keeps me from from having to walk down the same street. I don't need it. I don't need to do that. Okay. The other thing that happens when things don't quite go the way we want them to is we fall into the pit of doubt. And doubt is very insidious. Doubt is the place where we say, oh, is this the right thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? Is this practice working for me? Should I be doing that? And we become immobilized by all the questions that we're asking ourselves. And a way, it's a way of not looking at what's really happening. It's as if we would rather call into question the whole thing than actually look at what's happening. I've caught myself doing this. I've caught myself saying, 
I just don't know which way to go. And it's because I don't even want to look. I don't really want to look. I don't quite want to know. Every time, I like going on long retreats. And every time I go on a long retreat, I'm very apprehensive before. Very apprehensive. Because I know that devoting myself to meditation over a long period of time is going to make me see things that I haven't, that I don't know what they are. Some of them I like, and some of them I really don't like. I discover things about my habits of mind and habits of behavior which cause suffering for me and other people. Now, once I see that, I have choices I can make. But going into retreat, I know that I don't know what I'm going to see. I have to give up believing that I have control over what I'm going to see. So my practice, my practice is actually to go on retreat to see what I'm missing. And if you don't think that's scary, think about it. (laughs) What am I missing? Could be great stuff. Could be maybe not so great stuff. So why do I do it? Because one of the things that I've discovered was I don't have to believe in anything. As long as I'm willing to see what arises, it doesn't hurt. It just is. It just is. And having seen that over and over again, I don't worry so much about it. I can feel the apprehension, but I have faith. I've developed faith that it's okay to see things as they are. Based on my experience, not because of what somebody has told me. But everything that I have learned just is. It's neither good nor bad. That comes later. So sometimes, when you get this feeling of not knowing what to do, the best thing to do is nothing. So I'm going to tell you a story. At this point, um, my husband and I are trying to sell a condo, my mother's condo, uh, in another state. And, uh, you know, we've accepted a contract. And the, the potential buyers come back with their list of, we want you to do these things. And I got that list, and I just went ballistic. I was so angry. There was the first item on the list was clean the leaves out of the gutter. Okay. <laughs> now to me this seemed really picky. <laughs> and I couldn't believe how angry I was. My husband couldn't believe how angry I was. 
And I sat there and I thought, why am I angry? After all, it's really just leaves in a gutter. You know, how hard is it to clean out? Now, what I found is that I was directing anger toward the buyer. Why can't they just clean the leaves out themselves? (laughs) But why couldn't I clean the leaves out? Why was it making me angry? And that was interesting to just sit there and I could feel the energy in my body, you know, and the pump, 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 pump. I'm thinking, I shouldn't be angry. But I am. I'm angry. What do I do with this? Why is this here? What, what is this? And because I could say, I, I kept asking, what is this? What is this? What is this? It became clear that it, the buyer actually didn't have anything to do with this. It had to do with my sense of powerlessness and my frustration. You know, if you, this condo happens to be in Phoenix where the real estate market has really tanked. <laughs> So, you know, we're selling it for far less than we paid for it. And, you know, they offered us less than we asked for it. And now there are all these other penny-ante little things that have to be done. And what was really happening was resentment and powerlessness and fear. And, you know, the anger went away. There was no room for anger at that point. But once I realized all this other stuff, I did not have to let go of my anger at these other people. These other people didn't have anything to do with what was going on. There was nothing to let go of. But I could have just kept saying, and I actually I still do say, I can't believe they wanted me to clean the leaves out of the gutter. But I'm saying it in a much more lighthearted way. And it isn't, there's no anger attached to it anymore. It's just confusion. Okay. But what I had to be willing to be present for was my own confusion. I had to be willing to sit there with that feeling of not understanding why I was angry, what the anger was about. And to keep asking, what, what's going on here? What are the conditions for this anger? What are the conditions for the anger? Not who's causing it. Not why am I angry? What are the conditions in this moment that allow anger to rise? I don't own this anger. The buyers don't own this anger. The conditions are these things over which I feel powerless. Okay, fine. There are things over which I feel powerless. I called up my brother. I said, brother, go clean the leaves out of the gutter. And the anger didn't have anything to do with anything. But the practice is seeing what is really true. That's what we have to do. So sometimes, when we ask those questions, there's nothing for us to do. I didn't have to let go of anger. I didn't even have to clean the leaves off, but... (laughs) But seeing what is true takes all that tension and that constriction out of the moment. And that's what freedom is about. That's what freedom is about. Having a choice in the moment that doesn't have to do with blame, someone else's fault. I can just walk down a different street. I don't have to fight the hole in the sidewalk.
So here are some questions. When you find yourself in the moment and you want to figure out what's going on, ask yourself, what is my attitude? Are you actually interested in the present moment? Do you really care? (laughs) Am I interested in what's going on right now? Do you want anything? Is there something I'm wanting? Is the mind relaxed? When you get used to noticing whether your mind is tight, holding on, tense, or relaxed, that's a lot of information about what the conditions are that are giving rise to whatever is happening in this moment. It's a really good question. Is the mind relaxed? How much energy are you using? How much energy are you using in this moment? Is it easy? Are you having to hold yourself in place? Do you feel like you're running? Notice the energy. Notice whether the energy is positive. Notice whether the energy feels like a burden. Notice whether it's enlivening. Are you aware in this moment? Notice something about the moment. What is awareness? What am I aware of? I'm aware that I'm sitting here. I'm aware that I'm tired. I'm aware that I'm watching everyone. What are you aware of? This is something to pay attention to. Is greed, ill will, or delusion present? Use the word confusion instead of delusion. That was the thing that I noticed when I was trying to deal with the anger. I was confused about it because I knew that there was that there was something wrong. So that was a clue for me. I'm confused. Why does it arise and why does it disappear? This is is really important information. Why does it arise and why does it disappear? There aren't, there aren't final answers to these things. These are just things to ask yourself, things to notice. What ideas do you have about your practice? Are you setting yourself up? Notice the bumps. Notice the smoothness. What gives rise to this moment What gives rise to this moment? So I'm going to read you a little poem. This poem is by Jane Hirschfield. This is from her new book, Come Thief. This poem is called The Decision. There's a moment before a shape hardens, a color sets, before the fixative or heat of kiln, the letter might still be taken from the mailbox. 
the hand held back by the elbow. The word kept between the larynx pulse and the amplifying drum skin of the room's air. The thorax of an ant is not as narrow. The green coat on old copper weighs more. Yet something slips through it, looks around, sets out in new direction for other lands, not into exile, not into hope, simply changed. As a sandy track rut changes when called a silk road, it cannot be after turned back from. Let me read it again. There's a moment before shape hardens a color sets, before the fixative or heat of kiln, the letter might still be taken from the mailbox, the hand held back by the elbow, the word kept between the larynx pulse and the amplifying drum skin of the room's air, the thorax of an ant is not as narrow. The green coat on old copper weighs more, yet something slips through it, looks around, sets out in the new direction for other lands, not into exile, not into hope, simply changed. As a sandy track rut changes when called a silk road, it cannot be after turned back from. There is a moment in every moment where something changes. It's very narrow, this moment. It goes in a direction we don't know. It can be a very minor thing, but every moment gives rise to a new moment. How will you condition the next moment? Those are my thoughts. Thank you for listening. I hope this was useful. Any questions, comments? Yes. We have the pointed object, which is a microphone, coming your way. Um, I'm uh, very, very new to meditation practice. I've only got like a couple of months, and um, I've been finding it, wanting to stay just in the noticing mode of just noticing what's there and not delve too far into investigation because I don't, I don't want to get attached to like trying to solve why I figure irrit- why I'm irritated about something. So I'm just wondering if there's any advice you can give, especially to a beginner. When, when it's appropriate, really appropriate, to go forth into investigation, especially if it's something simple that irritates you a lot. When I get on a plane and somebody sits next to me and they're cracking their gum, I, I become enraged. Like, I almost can't contain my anger. And I know that, okay, if I'm getting angry at the person that's misplaced, maybe if I just hear it as a sound, I can get through this. <laughs> But, you know, do I really need to know why I feel so enraged to hear the sound of, of gum? It's just I don't like that sound. Uh-huh. So, um, so here's one comment that I want to make. 
At no time did I say, why? Why am I angry? What I said is, what else is here? What else is true? And the reason I make this distinction is that mindfulness is not about uh, analyzing. You know, when you, you break down the thought and you figure out what else is, what's going in the thought and what led to the thought and where that thought is going to rise. We're not doing that. We're simply saying, what's true, what's true. So in the case of the guy, somebody sitting next to you popping their gum, you notice the irritation. You can notice the sound. You can notice how it feels in your body to be irritated. You can notice... Um, you can ask yourself, does the gun, gum irritate me only here, only on airplanes? Does the gum irritate me all the time? When else do I know when, there's, when I'm irritated by gum? What else is true? Look at the conditions for it. But don't, don't chase it a long way. That's not useful. That's not skillful. So maybe it isn't about the gum. What else is true? I am irritated that I'm irritated. I am a meditator. I shouldn't be irritated. I'm embarrassed. Notice what else is there. Because you're not going to be able to do anything about that gum. Why chase it? But you may find out something about you that's very useful in that moment. So try that. Um, yeah, always in mindfulness, there's an object of mindfulness and there's the being aware of the object, being aware that we know the object. So there are many things that we can be aware of as you already know, the sound, the feeling in the body, the attitude of the mind. Is the mind expansive? Is the mind contracted? This is a really good one when you're in a situation that's irritating, is to notice whether, what the attitude of the mind is. So it's not, it's, not the added, it's not the emotional mood kind of thing. It's more like, is, is it expansive? Is it contracted? Because sometimes we can deal with that. The, the, you, you can't deal with the popping gum. But maybe we can look at how the mind is feeling. The mind feels tight. Ooh, tight. And you can become so interested in how tight the mind is, you don't know that gum is there. So it's another way of, of dealing with the situation is really being mindful of something that engages you. So you might try that. Thank you for the questions. Good one. <clears throat> Anything else? Okay. So, notice the texture in your life. Notice the texture in your practice. Try not to have expectations of your practice. May you be easy. Good night.